slap a jap for cap. All right, this is Cinema Excelsior, the podcast where we analyze, criticize, dissect, deconstruct uh, the films of the Marvel Comics canon. Uh, I am Stefan Claypool, and I'm joined here today again by the uh, the same roundtable, the same cavalcade of stars that was with us on the last show. Uh, to my digital left, uh, the Steve Rogers, to my nomad, man without a country, that would be Mr. Nick Bester. Hi there. Uh, to his digital left, we have uh, the Falcon himself, Derek Long. That's not my actual and, voice. And to his digital left, uh, the young Bucky to our crew, Mr. Daniel Watson-Jones. I'm waving, but you guys can't see me. I'm talking to the audience. Also, okay. can, can I just say, you said it's Cinema Excelsior. Shouldn't it be like, yeah. Cinema Excelsior? You want me to do that again? Please do. Uh, do you want me to do it in my voice or in Stan Lee's voice? Just be true to the word Excelsior. Cinema Excelsior! Thank you. Is that better? Well done. Okay. Yes. I'll dub that in. Good. Yes, so if you couldn't tell from the uh, not very oblique references as we run around our round table, tonight's film is Captain America, made in 1990. Yeah, we've got some thoughts about this. <laughs> now, this um, is the first... We... Go ahead. Well... Uh, no, say what you were going to say, Dooch. This is, this is the first Captain America film made for theatrical release, correct? Uh, the first... It is the first Captain there America There were two made film. for television. There were two made for television, and there was an old serial. We'll get yeah. to those in a minute. But bef before we launch into that side of it, uh, again, we, this film is available on YouTube. You can buy it through iTunes or Amazon, if you're so inclined. Um don't be so inclined. Don't do it. Don't be so inclined. Um, but so that you're with us through this conversation, we would like to, as we do, take a moment to summarize the film for you. And handling those duties today is Mr. Derek Hall. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Stefan. So this is Captain America from 1990. Uh, the movie begins with a brief prologue set in Italy in the year 1936, in which a young boy, Tadzio DeSantis, is kidnapped by fascist soldiers who kill his family. The boy is forced to undergo an experimental injection of a new serum that can transform even the weakest of men into a super-soldier. However, the scientist who developed the serum, one Dr. Maria Vaselli, played by Carla Casola, has a change of heart upon seeing the young boy and flees Italy for the United States. Seven years later, in 1943, Vaselli is collaborating with the U.S. government in an attempt to develop a similar serum that the Army can use to create its own super-soldiers for the war effort. The man chosen for the first injection is polio victim Steve Rogers, played by Matt Salinger, who successfully undergoes the procedure, but not before Vaselli is assassinated by a Nazi agent posing as an observer from President Roosevelt's office. As she lies dying in Roger's arms, Vizelli urges him to never give up, and Rogers officially earns his codename, Captain America. Cap recovers quickly from the operation and receives his first assignment, the infiltration and destruction of a Nazi rocket base. Unfortunately, he must go in alone, as the secrets of the Super Soldier Serum and designs for Cap's advanced uniform and vibranium shield died with Dr. Vizelli. 
After parachuting into the base and quickly dispatching several Nazi guards by throwing his shield, Cap is confronted by the Italian boy, now grown in, into a deformed Nazi super soldier known as the Red Skull, played by Scott Pollan. Red Skull defeats Captain America and straps him to a rocket set to strike the White House. As the missile is about to launch, however, Cap grabs hold of Red Skull, forcing the Nazi to cut off his own hand to avoid being carried along with it. Meanwhile, in Washington, D.C., a young boy named Thomas Kimball takes a picture of Captain America strapped to the flying bomb as it flies over the White House. Cap is able to divert the rocket, but as a result he lands somewhere in Alaska, where he remains frozen for the next 50 years. We move forward to the year 1993, as now President Thomas Kimball, played by Ronnie Cox, launches an initiative to sign an international treaty banning environmentally harmful industrial practices against the wishes of his top general, Fleming, played by Darren McGavin. Unbeknownst to President Kimball, Fleming leads a secret cabal of generals and industrialists who, it is revealed, have been conspiring with the Red Skull for the past 50 years to assassinate figures of truth and justice, including the Kennedys and Martin Luther King. At a secret meeting with Red Skull, who has undergone plastic surgery to attenuate his deformities, it is also revealed that the criminals have hatched a scheme to kidnap Kimball and end his reforms by implanting him with a mind control chip. In Alaska, Cap's frozen body is discovered by a group of scientists, and he breaks loose from his icy confinement, still convinced that he is in the 1940s. News of Cap's escape reaches both President Kimball and the Red Skull, who dispatches his daughter Valentina, played by Francesca Neri, to kill him. She nearly succeeds before Kimball's childhood pal Sam, played by Ronnie Cox's deliverance pal Ned Beatty, rescues Rogers, having been sent by the President to find him. Sam reveals that, is, that it is the 1990s and shares his suspicions about Red Skull and the military-industrial cabal. He tells Cap that the only way to defeat them would be to discover Red Skull's true name. Convinced that Sam is a Nazi agent playing an elaborate ruse, Cap abandons Sam somewhere in Canada and heads to the home of his old girlfriend Bernice, played by Kim, Kim Gillingham, in California. Now 70 and married, Bernice arranges for Steve to stay with her daughter Sharon, also Kim Gillingham, who brings him up to speed on the last 50 years of world history through the magic of VHS. Sam finds Bernice and her husband, but before he can convince, to, he, before he can convince Bernice to help him find Steve, Valentina kills both Sam and Bernice and causes Sharon's father to have a heart attack. Steve and a grieving Sharon set off in a search for Dr. Vaselli's diary at her old secret lab underneath a diner, hoping it will reveal the name of Red Skull. After a brief ambush by Valentina's henchmen, Steve and Sharon head to Red Skull's boyhood home in Italy, spurred on by clues in Vaselli's diary. Meanwhile, President Kimball is abducted and taken to the Red Skull's lair on San Lorenzo Island to be implanted with a mind-control chip. Cap and Sharon find the villain's old house as well as an old audio recording of the murder of Red Skull's family. In the course of another ambush by Valentina and her thugs, Sharon is able to steal Valentina's purse and discover the location of the fortress on San Lorenzo. Steve and Sharon head there, and Sharon allows herself to be captured as a diversion, while Steve suits up to infiltrate the fortress, vowing that he will not fail again. President Kimball escapes his captivity on the island and teams up with Captain America, revealing to him that he was the little boy that snapped his photograph at the White House. A climactic confrontation ensues as Kimball calls in NATO and punches out the treacherous General Fleming. Cap confronts Red Skull and Sharon fights Valentina. 
driven to the top of his island fortress, the Red Skull threatens to detonate a dirty bomb that will render all of southern Europe a radioactive wasteland for 150 years. Out of options, Cap plays the recording of the murder of Red Skull's family, distracting him. In the brief lull, Rogers throws his boomeranging vibranium shield such that it sends the Red Skull careening off a cliff and kills Valentina as it returns. As the U.S. Marines arrive on the scene, Cap and Sharon embrace, and a voiceover reveals that the president was able to successfully sign the environmental treaty. God bless America. That that was actually much more exciting than the film itself. (laughs) Also, Derek, could you do that again, but this time say boomeranging? (laughs) (laughs) Well, here, I'll just say boomeranging, and you can edit it in seven. Okay, good, good. Say it. Boomerang. Boomerang. That was at 1630. Good. Boomerang. <laughs> <sighs> yes. So, Captain America, it's, it's an interesting property to bring into the cinematic medium, and one that has been done a couple times before, as we alluded to earlier. Uh, Captain America, as a character, was created in 1941, uh, notable for being one of the few iconic Marvel characters not created by Stan Lee. He was actually created by Joe Simon and Jack Kirby. And not surprisingly, given the fact that it's Captain America, he was explicitly a figure of propaganda, uh, fighting the Nazi menace. And Simon's idea when creating him was this was before the U.S. had really taken the hard plunge into World War II. Simon said that the anti-war forces in the U.S. had had their say, and now it was time to hear from the other side. Uh, After World War II, as happens with these characters, uh, Cap's popularity faded. Uh, A couple of revivals were tried in the 50s. Uh, I I really enjoy when he came back as Captain America, commie smasher. But nothing really seemed to stick until Stan Lee and Jack Kirby reintroduced the character in Avengers issue 4 in 1964 as a man out of time trying to adapt to modern life. And when we look at comic book history, Cap has had many things happen to him. He has been a hero, he's been dead, he's been lost in time, typical comic book things, and continues to be published in several books to this day. Um, Cap had appeared in other media before this 1990 debacle. Uh, As with many Marvel characters, he had a cartoon show in the 1960s, which gave us an incredible theme song. In the live-action medium, uh, he starred in an old serial uh, in 1944. Uh, This was actually an interesting adaptation of the character, because in it, Cap is not an American super soldier. He is actually a crusading district attorney. (laughs) Which sounds like a departure, Uh, and the reason it sounds like it is because this script was actually, we talked about this jokingly with other films, this script was not written for Captain America. It was written for different characters. Was it written for She-Hulk? Perry Mason? No. (laughs) Perry Mason is closer than She-Hulk. Popular Marvel character, Perry Mason? (laughs) Exactly. No, it it was written for an existing serial serial killer, serial character in the 1940s. Uh, Fibber McGee and Molly? (laughs) Sure, we'll say it's Fibber McGee. (laughs) But when the studio acquired the rights to Captain America, they dropped him in. Um, And the results showed. Uh, Then in the late 1970s, the character appeared in two TV movies, uh, both of which starred, as Captain America, space mutiny icon Reb Brown, a.k.a. Slab Bulkhead. 
Big McLarge huge? Uh, Big McLarge huge. Big French large meat. <laughs> exactly. Um, Big McRun the, the first film was called Captain America. Chest. The second was Captain America 2, Death Too Soon. Which is... <laughs> That's a fantastic <laughs> subtitle. What? What? Why did they choose that and not Captain America colon death too soon? It, they, it, oh, I guess because it wasn't 2010. Be careful, we will be exactly. reaching speeds of three. <laughs> <laughs> and, and after the, you know, these media properties had their day in the sun and Christopher Reeve's Superman films hit, people started to think about what a comic book movie could be. The rights to the Captain America character were licensed by Canon Films. <laughs> Canon Films. So Canon had been founded in 1967, but in 1979 was sold to Israeli cousins Menahem Golan and Yoram Globus for about $500,000. I believe that's Menahem Golan. Menahem Golan. And Wait, Yoram Golan Globus. or Golem? <laughs> Golan. G-O-L-A-N. Okay, so it wasn't Kofi, nor was it, it, it Gollum. Was, it was not. <laughs> okay. The business model under the Golan Globus model, or under Golan and Globus, was to buy properties for the cheap and make cheap films off of them, advertise them heavily in advance to pre-sell the film, and then use those pre-sells to make their next films. Hmm. Uh, notable canon films of this period included the Death Wish sequels, Invasion USA, and Missing in Action, Chuck Norris Vehicles. Breakin' and Breakin' to Electric Boogaloo. Life Force, which was an adaptation of The Space Vampire. Starring Patrick Stewart. Starring Patrick Stewart. <laughs> Masters of the Universe. Superman 4, The Quest for Peace. The Jean-Claude Van Damme vehicles, Cyborg and Kickboxer. And, of course, Franco Zeffirelli's Othello. The only one of those that I've seen are the Breakin' movies. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen uh, Missing in Action 2, and I think I saw one of the Death Wish movies. Actually, I saw it in the same venue that I saw Captain America several times when I was young, which was on a local uh, syndication network that later became the Fox Network coming out of D.C. Okay. That sounds about right. I can say I'm very happy that I've only seen the Breaking movies. If those are the only ones that I'm going to see on that list, I'm happy it's Breaking and Breaking 2. And you're not going to see any more going forward either, because uh, not surprisingly, this business model was not sustainable. And you Golden and Globus scheme, <laughs> exactly. Uh, <laughs> Golden and Globus were bought out of Canon in the late '80s. But as part of his severance deal, Golan left the studio with the rights to Captain America and also the rights to Spider-Man. Interestingly enough, which we'll come back to in several weeks. Uh, when Golan left, he took the rights, he took the script. And he took a lot of the quote-unquote talent. So this film, although it was not released as a canon film, it was released under the banner of the 21st Century Film Corporation, which is the cheapest name for a studio, I can imagine. Uh, it was written by a canon writer, Stephen Tolkien. It was directed by a canon director, Albert Pyun. I'm Pyun, Pyun. I'm going with Pyun. Uh, and it had the canon pedigree, which is to say it sucked. Uh, a, I will a couple not more have you besmirching of... the good name of Breakin. <laughs> a couple oh. more pieces of trivia before we get deep into the discussion here, because I, I think we all have a lot to say about this movie. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> the rumor is that there were originally three other actors considered for the role of Cap uh, and Steve Rogers. One, of course, was Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, <laughs> The the, the excuse was, oh, we decided not to cast him because of the accent, but I, I'm not sure that uh, that Golan and company made that decision. Uh, the second was Dolph Lundgren. Of course. Uh, who had to pass because he was making The Punisher. And the, th- the third, which is... Not enough Lundgren not enough. And the third, which is actually, I think, the most interesting choice, would have been Val Kilmer. I, I could see Val Kilmer the other day. Yeah, I could see that. He passed on the film to go make the Doors, which was a good career move. <laughs> Probably, yeah. Yep. Uh, the film uh, was released theatrically, international, internationally produced for a theatrical release, delayed for two years in the U.S., and finally dumped uh, onto the shelves of your local video store, and presumably, I guess, uh, onto syndicated television, uh, as as Young Dude saw it. Just yep. like our previous film. Exactly. exactly. And in, interestingly movies. enough, our next film as well, but we'll come back to that. <laughs> our next well, film is. I I feel I should mention that of the entire film, I remembered exactly two scenes, and one of them I misremembered. Uh, I okay. remember the first scene and the final scene. But uh, all I remembered was them breaking into the house and taking uh-huh. the child. Uh, and then I remember Red Skull at the end on the roof of some kind of castle, playing the piano. But in my head, I remembered him as having the red skull in that climactic <laughs> battle sequence. Also, I remember Captain America throwing the shield at him while he was at the mm-hmm. piano. Yeah. <sighs> but I remember it being oh, much more dramatic, like there being a, a tense kind of... You like, were also like six. Yes, this is, this is true. <laughs> Although I remember seeing it several times over the course of... A, two or three years although i also remember the swamp thing cartoon having like two full seasons oh. and it had five episodes so God, I, I, I remember those five episodes really well <laughs> i never saw that it, the they, uh, theme song they, they were... is wild thing redone as swamp thing swamp thing <laughs> you missed my swamp thing you uh, catch uh, everything you're... nasty or something fight yeah everything yeah, nasty. yeah yeah anyway, yeah that's awful that cool. it, it was it was perfect that's yes. awful <laughs> So, so with, with Captain America, again, you know, our, our purpose here is we're trying to understand what makes these films succeed and fail as adaptations from their medium, as filmic enterprises that make or don't make money, and as pieces of art. So with, with that, uh, that out of the way, um, what do we think of this one? <laughs> I would like to start by talking about the Red Skull. Which That's they make several. They make several very peculiar decisions in how they portray Red Skull. <laughs> First and foremost, he is an Italian businessman. <laughs> Second, and perhaps more egregiously, he is only he only has the Red Skull for like two minutes of the movie. The rest of it, he just looks like a really sunburned guy who had like a burn and like <laughs> has scar tissue all over his face. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Those are interesting decisions. Maybe we should walk through them. Um, how, how much of his later costume, like, how much of his face was prosthetic? Or how much was makeup, do you know? Like, how much of that is just the actor's face? A, a decent amount of it was makeup. So actually, earlier in the film, when Cap is in the hospital bed after being mm-hmm. shot, the doctor that attends him there is the same actor that plays the Red Skull. Oh. Hmm. I did not um, Without mm-hmm. prosthetics, without makeup. So certainly some of the... 
the bit at the end is it, it's not as a like full blown red skull makeup, but it's still some pretty heavy prosthesis. Regardless, though, it was probably cheaper. I'm guessing. Yeah, so I think yeah, that's probably true. One of the things that we'll come back to yes. over the course of the the conversation, the film is not bad because of its budget problems, but the budget problems show. Yeah, and I, I, I have yes. I have to believe that the decision to only have the red skull makeup in a small portion of the film, as well as came the Captain most, America costume. Yeah, as well as the one Captain America mm-hmm. costume that never gets repaired or, or changed. Yeah. Um, came from well, the fact was, that there was no money. It was a secret formula that died with Captain Vaselli or uh, uh, Doctor Vaselli. <laughs> it's all explained very perfectly there. I don't understand what your issue I, with that what is. What was so special <laughs> about the costume? It was fire it retardant. Could, what was yeah. that? It did they mention that? Yeah, because they, it what, obviously takes yeah, damage and yeah. like can be. But I think holes are shot in it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. It's not particularly same with the shield. It's not particularly impressive. It's, just, it's, it's, apparently, yeah. it's apparently fireproof, it's but at no point does anybody try to set him on fire, so it never actually becomes relevant. Does yeah. I? I mean, I was paying almost all of my attention to the film through almost all of it, but I don't remember ever hearing the word vibranium. Was that in there? Nope, I don't. Okay. No, no, right, it was not. Yeah, because Derek, you you used it in the summary, but I never got the impression that it was. I, I did yeah. use it. Okay. Yeah. I, I think they did. Also, it, it was made. It was made in. I just I needed some synonyms. Yeah. I, I think I, I think I think when they're explaining it. the shield, they just say something like "and the formula for this metal" or yeah. something like that. Yeah. Uh, uh, is, was this lost. experimental? Yeah. Derek, did you was, write that summary, or was that like Wikipedia or what? Yeah. Okay. No, oh, I wrote okay. it. Very nice. It was. A, and you a, and you knew summary. that you knew the names of a lot more characters than I did. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did. I did review the film. Fair He's a professional. Then I should have. All right. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, the, the the makeup was disappointing, and then um, we got to talk about this. Why is the Red Skull an Italian in this film? Because the Red Skull is traditionally not only German, not only a Nazi. He is Hitler's right hand man. Oh, in Marvel Comics. Okay. Yeah. He, he he was Hitler's protege. Um, yeah, him being mis- a Nazi is pretty important to the character. I I misremembered him actually when I was a when I was thinking back on this. Uh, what I remembered as a kid, I had thought that he was a Soviet. Uh, but, you know, I, I guess I was watching this when I was seven or eight, so uh, it's it's pretty easy for me to make that mistake, I guess. I, I guess seven or eight-year-old dude didn't understand the vagaries of European politics. <laughs> but he's also uh, a dude that has red in the name, and if you like look at comics from the 60s, you expect everybody who's got red in I, their name to be a Soviet. Yeah, the Let's be honest. I would not... That's Absolutely true. That's true. Valid. Yeah, that's fair I think enough. that probably had a lot fair to do enough. with it. <laughs> I had thought yeah. that Red Skull part was of it... part of his, like, uh, I didn't know anything about Captain America comics any more than I do now, which is basically nothing. Uh, and I had thought that he was specifically created by communist Russia. No. Mm. no it's, it's not just a clever I think part of <laughs> I think part of the reason that they made him Italian, and I guess reason is perhaps a general a generous term, was that they have to sort of solve the plot problem of, okay, we have to have his parents killed. Mm-hmm. And we have to have that come back as a plot point at the very end. Mm-hmm. But we can't really have his parents or his family killed by Nazis because that it kind of strains credulity to then think that Red Skull would become a Nazi yeah. after his family is killed by Nazis. Um, 
So, I, you know, I, I can see whoever the screenwriter was saying, okay, somebody who's sort of related to Nazis, but not really. Oh, Italian fascists. Mm. You know, there's there's the sort of Okay, so I guess I can kind of make more sense than, than uh, Japanese soldier. <laughs> but I, I, I do think that that is... Uh, <laughs> what that does, though, is that says that the first thing they decided was, okay... The film is going to end with Cap playing a tape recorder that's going to play back the scene of the parent's death and touch the Red Skull's heart. So, yeah. so, so they, they begin not? with that point, and then, they, and then they say, okay, so rather than beginning with the established character well, it, that was literally handed to them... <laughs> Hitler's right-hand man. Well, Fuck well, this could, noise. It could also have been... It could also have been, you know, some screenwriter's ambition to, okay, you know, the Red Skull is he's originally written. He's kind of a one-sided character, you know? I mean, he's just pure evil. I want to I want to introduce some sort of pathos into this character, right? I want to make you feel for him. His family gets killed. And so, you know, and so it, it just sort of goes from there, right? I mean, it's, it's sort of a half-hearted attempt to introduce some sort of complexity into the Red Skull's character. Mm -hmm. Um, but as a result, there's kind of a subsidiary plot problem that yes. gets raised. Yep. And, and not resolved. Yes. And not resolved at all. Now, <laughs> speaking of the Red Skull. I also, I also like the entire, that the entire, like, last third of this movie takes place in Italy. Yeah. Very randomly. <laughs> one, of, one of the things that I had not gotten from the movie, which I, I only realized when you were telling it, I did not realize that there was a seven-year gap between Red Skull's creation and Captain America's creation. So you have this little. I just thought this was like a couple of months later or something. So oh, no. it, there's I, a subtitle for it. I'm sure there. I'm sure there is a no. subtitle. And I just missed it. But I just remember. I, At some point, I would like to talk about the subtitles. I, I just remember yeah. thinking. We, we just, I just remember thinking. God, that Red Skull serum did so did a number on that little boy because it went from being like a, a ten year old boy to a full grown <laughs> Red Skull Nazi. I'm like, damn, that's a good serum. <laughs> I, yeah, I completely missed the time lapse there. So I was like, "What?" <laughs> uh, yeah, the timing yeah. doesn't really work. Yeah, uh, in any yeah. sense. Another, th I, I'd also like to think that that's just a mistake on the part of the screenwriter. Like they didn't understand that like there were Italian fascists in the 1920s, and was like, "Oh, I gotta, I, I don't, I gotta solve this problem somehow. I'll make it." So, so we, we, I fucking love, the, I fucking love this voice you keep using for your screenwriter. Yeah. This is the screenwriter voice. He's sitting in his typewriter, and the, the screenwriter, I, th I think I do need to mention this. So the guy's name is Stephen Tolkien, not related to no relation. Tolkien. No relation. <laughs> Spelled the um, same way? He, but he, the same. he had a couple, no, he, he had a couple of interesting credits uh, on his IMDb page that I thought were worth mentioning. One, uh, not surprisingly, he's a canon guy. He did a rewrite of the Masters of the Universe film. <laughs> His first writing job, and maybe this is the point where he should have said, okay, I quit. It's, this isn't going to work. He got his start as a writer on the TV show Delta House, which was a spinoff, of a 1979 spinoff nope. of Animal House. Animal House. Oh, of course, of course. This was the <laughs> Animal House TV show yep. uh, that I believe John Vernon and... Uh, Jim Belushi? No way to go through life, son. Uh, <laughs> Jim Belushi would have been perfect for it. <laughs> uh, I, I'm, for, I'm forgetting the actor's name. Bester, who played uh, Vic, Cor uh, Vic Corto in Babylon 5? Uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> though, 
Though we do have a Babylon 5 person in this movie, too, because Bill Mummy is in this movie very, very Bill briefly. Bill Mummy is in this or movie. Or Mummy? I'm not actually sure how it's pronounced. But Bill Mummy, also of Lost in Space fame, he is Will Rogers, uh, Robinson, after all. Uh, he is very briefly in the film. He's Will Rogers. <laughs> no relation. Um, but yes, I know who you're talking Stephen Tolkien, Delta House, Masters in the Universe. He's still writing. He was actually a staff writer on the show Brothers and Sisters, and also Legend of the Seeker. Interesting. So he's... He's he's not exactly at the top of his field, but he is a steady working writer. Okay, well, gotta respect that, um, I guess. And he talks Good like you? this, and made the <laughs> he talks like this, and doesn't know about twenty. Well, while we're talking about the writing, one thing that I really noticed is that like the first twenty minutes of this movie, like up until he gets like on the rock and then gets frozen, it's effectively the first hour or so of the oh. Chris Evans. This uh, yeah. Captain America movie. Yeah, he gets, I, was, I think we we should decide like since we'll be watching the Chris Evans movie a while from now. How much do we want to talk about like this in comparison to that? I I would like to at very least talk about how the first twenty minutes are effectively the same okay, movie, okay. and it yes. ends with but I mean, the the Chris Evans film ends with him getting frozen. Yeah, uh, yes. I feel like that's you know there were a lot of plot yeah. points that were similar. Yeah, but Obviously, I mean, they you have the, the uh, scale down significantly in time and budget. Yeah. <laughs> well, is this, correct me if I'm wrong, is is this the basic, you know, kind of storyline yeah. uh, when they had the mid-60s reboot? It is. So, so Cap- Captain America yeah. was a World War II super soldier. He was uh, a sickly young man who was injected with a super soldier serum by Dr. Abraham Erskine. Erskine was killed. The serum was lost. Cap was a super soldier for a few years in World War II. And then in a mission that most of the time is related to the Red Skull, was frozen and then was awakened. You know, when he was first published, it was 20 years later. Now it's 60 years later. Um, By either S.H.I.E.L.D. or the Avengers. So this is fairly well established in terms of the character. And in every iteration Mm -hmm. um, to date... The Red Skull has, in one way or another, followed along with him, as have a number of other foes and friends. Yeah, but okay. I mean, I mean, even even outside of sort of the basic plot points of just this origin story, there's still a whole lot of plot similarities here. I mean, the way that the Doctor gets killed is almost identical. This whole like, oh, congratulations, yeah. Doctor Heil Hitler, shoot him kind of thing. Yeah. Then the, uh, how, the how how Mussolini. Yeah, and then and then uh, as opposed to the more recent one where he sort of spends some time uh, working uh, to like as a propaganda tool, they essentially just ship him off. He parachutes in to a factory, and he's there to stop the Red Skull's weapon uh, weaponry. And the Red Skull, there's a rocket involved in the more recent one. The Red Skull gets away on a rocket, but here, uh, yeah. it just felt like I was I was watching it going, this is this is like an hour into the more recent one. Mm-hmm. No, that's that's true, and I think that, again, part of that, and this is where we can talk a little bit about this as an adaptation, part of that comes from the character and and what his his basic background was. When we compare it to Howard the Duck and to The Punisher, both of those films were deviated very sharply from the comics on which they were based. Mm -hmm. Howard the Duck was deliberately strongly differentiated from the comics. The Punisher was deliberately, you know, take that character and drop him into the context of an 80s action movie. Um, Not so here. Like, this was, for all of the bizarre changes that happened, this 
of the films we watched so far was the most earnest attempt to adapt the character. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Except for the bizarreness about the Italian. Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, obviously, obviously, not a high level of fidelity to the Red Skull, but I mean, yeah, certainly in terms of Captain America, this is pretty, pretty much the story of Captain America. Speaking of which, and, and ma- well, as as we've been talking about, sort of his origin story. Did you at all buy that he was sickly prior to the? Uh... So I want. I really want to talk about <laughs> when we first meet Steve Rogers and everything up through him getting you know getting the super soldier serum put into him because there were so many things in there that bothered me not the le- <laughs> not the least of which was Matt Salinger <laughs> I mean I realize I realize obviously technologically they can't pull off the same thing that they did in the more recent one cuz that's mm-hmm. like yeah. absurd and there's no way they have the budget for that but they get this guy who is probably about 6 foot 6 or something he's a very tall man <laughs> and he seems entirely fine. It's not until they're strapping him into like the to the experiment to give him the super serum that somebody mentions that he has polio. That I even he does, he does limp. A yeah, little. he's got that, a very distinct limp yeah. through at least one scene. <laughs> well, I, 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 maybe I just missed that, but I mean, it wasn't until that somebody actually mentioned polio that I even thought that they were sticking to that part of the story. I just figured they went, well, "Oh fuck it, we'll just get some guy and make him a super soldier. He doesn't have to be weakling guy." To be fair, it. It doesn't really make sense to me as if I were someone in the army and trying to decide who to choose for this experiment. I wouldn't deliberately choose someone who was starting below the average. I would choose someone who is at peak physical condition and then hope that they became even better. Here's this gets back to an issue with the script, though. Um, We have comparing to the Chris Evans movie. There is a pretty significant amount of time devoted in the Chris Evans movie to understanding who Steve Rogers is before he becomes Captain America and why he is the person that should have that responsibility. Yes. We have no idea why Matt (laughs) Salinger was chosen to become Captain America. None at all. And we don't get to know yeah, him any better throughout we, the film. We have either. no idea who he is. He's exactly the same. At the yeah, exactly. The, literally, the, literally, the moment we meet him, he's like five minutes away from the army coming to pick him up to go inject him with super serum. <laughs> um, but, by the way, we, we should mention this. Uh, Matt Salinger is the son of Catcher in the Rye author J.D. Salinger. Yes. yes. We should get that out of the way. Yes, that, that's also, an important uh, concept. His first film was Revenge of the Nerds, which I he had was, not realized. He was, he was one of the uh, the Omegas. Those are those are those are the the jocks, right? No, he Matt Salinger was huh. one of the nerds. Oh, he was. I, I never thought about how strange no, it he, is he was that one of the, the, uh, oh. the alpha males are named the Omegas in Revenge of the Nerds. I bet that was probably deliberate. Anyway, probably. Go ahead. That's that's a clever movie. Much better than this. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Except for that um, whole thing so, where with the rape at the end. Well, let's just ignore that. Yeah. Well, yeah. We'll, we'll forget about that for now because they certainly did. Terrible. Anyway, I, I don't even know what you're talking about. Anyway, anyway we'll, we'll, we'll talk, talk about, about this later. Yeah. yeah. When you're older. Um, so we meet Steve Rogers. His mother, incidentally, is played by Melinda Dillon. So we have both the mother Those encounters in the third and a Christmas story. We have both the mother and the father from a Christmas story in this film because Darren That's McGavin true. was the old man. Oh, yeah. yeah. I had um, not noticed that. We meet him. We have no idea who he is. We have no idea why he's been chosen for this. We don't really see any physical defect that he has, although it is established in helpful narration that he has one. Yes. 
<laughs> and his defining characteristic seems to be that he is in love with a woman we see for two minutes. Mm-hmm. Yes, Ugh. that is literally the only amount of character yes. motivation we are ever given for him. I feel like mm-hmm. that's not Pretty unfair much. for the Captain America character, though, because uh, he's probably the most simplistic superhero that I can think of uh, in, in terms of his... I mean, like you said, he was originally created as just mm-hmm. a, uh, uh, a propaganda piece. Um, so well, if- you're taking a very one-dimensional character and making him one-dimensional. Well, here, here's the issue, though. I mean, if, if you begin with him in the World War II context, you can say he, he is not a morally ambiguous character. <laughs> but, but uh, yeah, that, that's, I know it's a stretch. <laughs> but but at the same time, I mean, th- th- there is, particularly in the comics, there, there is a level of depth to him. He's lost his parents. <laughs> he has you know, grown up as someone who has been bullied and who has had the world, been at the mercy of the world. Mm-hmm. And then is put in a position where he is suddenly, you know, the the fittest, most powerful human being in the world from a physical perspective and ha- has the, these incredible abilities. And he does not use that in a malicious way. You know, he, he is a guy who never had power and when given power did not let it go to his head. Doesn't abuse it. Okay. Yeah, I, I think that's interesting. And then when you put him in the, the modern times context and you have that dichotomy between who he is and the world around him, that becomes interesting. None of that comes through in this film. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the Yeah, Matt, Matt Salinger's performance does not modulate at nope. all. No. Um, there's no sense of character development. Um, he goes from being in love with this one it's woman. pretty bland. To part, her being... Part of it is like... It, it, it seems like there's a way to make... Because, like, I agree with you, Dooge. It, it seems like, in some sense, Captain America is actually a pretty challenging character to play. Because he began as this kind of very unambiguous, you know, not very developed sort of propaganda stereotype. Um, and But but there's a way to, to pull that off if you can, like, kind of wink at it a little bit. You know, mm-hmm. like... If, if you can kind of play well, this is 1990 the, before the winking was ever used and... in film. <laughs> this is true. Winking was invented in 1992. Um, there's, but I mean, but there's a there's a way to make like one-sided Captain America work, and Matt Salinger doesn't no. do that here. Yeah. He's 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 uh, vaguely patriotic, and that's it. Like that's that's he's vaguely patriotic, and he misses his girlfriend, and that's he tries to play it straight and doesn't play it at all. But yeah. even then, he doesn't yeah. even he doesn't even like get like super patriotic and talk about it very much. It's just kind of. He obviously is patriotic, but I mean, it's not like a—he's not he's like jingoistic or anything about it. Like, yeah, that's what I mean. Like, he—he he almost needed to play up the jingoism a yeah. little. Yeah, that would be—that uh, might be interesting. Like, <laughs> yeah, he, he was—he was a very passive Captain America. Like, if if you're going to be Captain America and you're going to like literally put the flag on your chest there. You do kind of have to stand up and be like, yes, I'm Captain America. He, he is, like, shaking in his boots before he jumps off that plane. I know! That whole scene is so weird. Oh, and, um, because where he, he's nervously asking the, like, you know, major who's, like, overseeing this whole project. He's like, um, I have a question that, that no one's really talked about so far. <laughs> what, when am I going to get more men? <laughs> It's like, and that's exactly how he delivers. He's, he's like nervous and, yeah. about going into combat. And it's his first. It is his and, first mission. This is the first time he has been asked to do anything. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. We have not seen him he even mentions that he has been... no idea how to use the shield yet, that he could stand yeah. to have yeah. another month's worth of practice with the shield. And the other thing, like, also throughout the course of the film, I mean, we obviously get action sequences with Captain America, mm-hmm. but, and, like, even putting the budget issues aside, they are not very impressive. Like, his abilities don't really amaze no. you in any in any way. Most of the amazement comes through in that shield, yeah, right? Yeah, because he definitely cuts a <laughs> gun in half with the shield. The shield is more charismatic than he is. <laughs> the, the shield, I think the experimental metal that the shield was made of in this film was boomerangs. Yeah. And one because uh, and one thing about the shield is he is a mu- I'm pretty sure he has a much Captain higher success Australia. rate in terms of hitting women with that shield than he does with men because <laughs> every every single time he comes up against uh, the Red Skull's daughters all all female team of uh, crack uh, Italian assassins he's a crack shot with that sh- shield like knocking them off uh, motorcycles and stuff. But he cannot, uh, until that very last scene, he cannot hit the Red Skull with that shield to save his life. What about the Ooh. random ninjas? <laughs> yes. There is a red... I only remember one random ninja. Was there a second there, random There may have been only one. Uh, regardless. In terms of, all the more in terms random. of plot progression and like the film itself, we're about 15 minutes into the film right now. <laughs> Well, we're kind of jumping around a little bit, but yes. We, we have skipped right past, though, uh, my my favorite uh, bit about the opening scene, which was when they show the soldiers coming into the house, they don't just enter through the doors. They're not just storming the doors. There's a very right. deliberate shot of a man breaking out a window and then stepping through the window as if this is a normal way to walk into a house. <laughs> and it's right next to the front door. <laughs> It's the old fascist doorbell, you know, breaking the window with your machine gun. I was very pleased, though, that before they murdered his family, they explained to them that they were taking him because of his superior intelligence. We need the boy for his superior intelligence. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. We should also uh, – I don't know if this will come up again, but we, we should also mention that um, – Young, the young Red Skull was a piano prodigy mm. before he was before he was. Which taken. was the the only sign we were given of his superior intelligence. <laughs> yes. His ability to play the piano. He can play the piano well. Obviously, he will be our perfect super soldier Nazi. <laughs> what? Why wasn't Glenn Gould our Captain America? Don't know. <laughs> Don't know. Um. So yeah, they they made Matt Salinger look really they. They did not do a good job of making him look any weaker than he actually is before he was transformed. During the transformation, actually, I wrote this line down because I loved it. Um, One of the generals, as they were getting ready to shoot him up, said, Eh, he may not be Superman, but he's the best we have. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I did remember that. Which is not exactly the best way to promote your flagship character. He's not as good as the other company's guy. Well, to be fair... Can we also mention... Go ahead, Nick. To be fair, I mean, nobody knew that uh, Dr. Vaselli or whatever her name was about to be gunned down by Heil Hitler guy. So, I mean, this this is just like guinea pig number one. If he ended up being the shitty Captain America, then you can bring in, you know, super jock, uh, America-loving, already pretty impressive dude. And make him super duper. Bring in Newt Rockney's corpse. Exactly. Yeah. Can, he is a terrible Captain America, by the way. Newt Rockney. I, I would like to say that the doctor, <laughs> the, the doctor manages to 
escape from the Italians, she leaps out of a very high castle window and then it's is true. immediately in America. They they stop well, it was chasing her later. as soon as they start focusing on the boy. Uh, and and then the, she, the, I don't know. She was very her impressive. Her escape is rather, is rather easy. I want to talk about her for just a minute because thematically um, you know, in the comics, this, this character was Dr. Abraham Erskine. He was a man. And in the Chris Evans film later, he, he is portrayed very clearly as a father figure mm-hmm. for Captain America, which makes sense given the, the function of the character. You turn, her, you turn him into a woman for this film, and the obvious follow-up would be, okay, she, she's a mother figure. She's a maternal figure for Captain America. Where that kind of falls apart is the film goes to great pains early on to illustrate that Steve Rogers has a living mother and his father <laughs> is dead. I actually thought that they had done it so that it would be more clear why she defected because it seemed like she – it was her motherly concern for the child that angered her so much that she uh, defected. Yeah. That's plausible, actually. I, think, I don't I know think why that, that uh, makes her need to be a woman, but I thought it was it's plausible, a good and, and the script never spells it out for yeah. you, though, Like, yeah. which is – you know, in, in some ways, we kind of need yeah. that. Rare, yeah. <laughs> to, to feel like the script has some kind of, you know, the rare moment why she would defect. I mean, uh, re- mm-hmm. regardless, I don't think it particularly matters what the gender of that character is. Uh, no, but I, 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 think I just it thought just it was... as well either way. Yeah, and I, I don't think it worked poorly. I just thought it was an interesting switch when the context that you've established with the relationship with the mother and father being what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, um, make, it makes more sense to... for her to be a mother figure if there's an absent mother. I think it's just the yes. point being made there. But yeah, anyway, you're saying. One, one thing I wanted to it's ask unmotivated. about um, why, or the, in relation to uh, Captain America's lack of overtly jingoistic uh, approach or you know, uh, feel, mm-hmm. why he's not constantly talking up America, uh, what exactly is the historical context for this? Uh, wh- how was how America, like, I mean, this is post-Reagan, it's during Bush 1. Uh, yeah. Well, how was America being portrayed in film at the time? So I, I think that there's a couple things to talk about here. Because first of all, it, it was post-Reagan. It's Bush 1. The Cold War is winding down, you know, as a, and this is 1990, so we're building up to go into the Gulf War. Like, mm-hmm. th- this is a, this is not a time when America is doing a whole ton of like, oh, God, this is America, ugh. It's not Malay's country. Yeah. Like it's we're we're pretty much like waving the flag at this point. This is when Hulk Hogan was fighting Sergeant Slaughter, that Iraqi sympathizer, at WrestleMania seven and waving the flag. Uh, <laughs> when exactly did the Cold War end? When uh, when did the Soviet Wall Union uh, Wall came down in eighty nine yeah. and the Soviet Union dissolved in ninety one? The Cold War is ending yes. when this film comes Yeah. Out. Yeah, I, I had the suspicion that it was either, uh, yeah, yeah, that the Berlin Wall had already come down. I didn't know when it was. Uh, so yeah, I mean, there's there's not as much mm-hmm. cynicism about about the character. Mm-hmm. I mean, for one, because there's not really a context where that necessarily. Makes. But there's also the not as much need sense. for him to be like, yeah, America. Uh, but at at the same time, I mean, if we look at some of the plotting decisions that were made in this film. Um, it's not a terribly pro-American film insofar as 
there are a number of American generals and businessmen killing important <laughs> historical figures with the use of a convicted or of a uh, fascist war criminal. And all of them American, uh, American heroes. All <laughs> of them. It was, yeah, it was the Kennedys and Martin Luther King. They couldn't come up with a single, they couldn't say, and he was responsible for Gandhi being killed or anything. They couldn't come up with a single nope. other non-American assassination that could have possibly mm-hmm. been used to, to no. uh, further some fascist... Uh, <laughs> Fascist agenda. No, he only cares about America. <laughs> well, now at first when I when I watched this, I was wondering: is this some kind of like, uh, is this related somehow to you know Oliver Stone's film JFK? Like you know, it, it seems like maybe this is a moment where um, there's there's it's maybe the height of like JFK like conspiracy theorizing, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and JFK came out a year after this film was yeah. was released. But you know, I'm wondering if. If there's some kind of <laughs> some kind of thing there, where there there must have been something in the in the in the cultural water in the zeitgeist, I will. Um, I, I think we, we <laughs> in addition to that, and to kind of like look at this a little bit broader in the context of the film, the central plot point of the film is Captain America has to stop American generals from preventing the signing of an Environmental Protection Act. That's yeah, that's, that's a very, a very odd choice. <laughs> yeah. well, kind I of think film. it's really Let's important, and I really enjoyed that actually because uh, I, in 1990, uh, I mean, I know that Al Gore had already written Earth in the Balance, or I think that was published in 1990, but there was not a huge environmental movement yet. Uh, I mean, I know global warming was already being talked about uh, a little bit, but I was really pleased with the fact that it, it felt to me like the environmental message was the primary or was the the fulcrum of the film that that was it, what it they felt were trying that to way to you because they hammered you over the head with that at several <laughs> yeah, points and it was film. like the final line of the film but uh, yeah but the, the question is why if you're making a captain america movie is this the the hill that you plant your flag on and adding on to that, why is that the hill you plant your flag on? And then your script doesn't really deal with that at all <laughs> yeah. in terms of like the character's understanding of this country. Because one thing that, you know, I hate to keep bringing up the Chris Evans version again, but like one thing I think it did really well is actually sort of account for, you know, um, Cap's kind of psychological adjustment to this new kind of more cynical world mm-hmm. that he's been he's been transplanted to, um, you know, that that doesn't really make sense to him as much anymore. And again, since they don't do that for Matt Salinger... Yeah, he, um, he gets convinced and, very And quickly. there's an obvious, like, way to do that, right? I mean, you, you've, you've already written it into, into the plot, but it never, like, comes full circle about, but, well, this country... You know, I thought this country was behind me, but our generals were... There, 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 there was one, the There was one moment, and actually this is the only thing in the film that I actually think was done really well. Um, when... Ned Beatty, I hate having to say this damn sentence. When Ned Beatty picks up our wandering Captain America in the middle of the Canadian wilderness to drive him back to Washington, and Cap is sitting in the car, and Ned Beatty is like throwing out all this exposition about this has changed, that has changed, blah, blah, blah. And Cap is sitting there, and the only things that he's doing is he is looking at the electronics and the things in the car, and he sees made in Germany and made in Japan. Made in Japan. I thought that was really well done. That was, yeah, that was a nice little uh, little clever way to, to do that. But it's not developed it anymore. Can it's, we, just, no, it's just no, sort of I, cuts I, to him. Hold, hold, hold on a second. I, I know exactly what you're going to say, Bester. Okay. Before we do, I have to 
I have to bring up this one thing that came up in the Red Skull and general planning meeting where they were talking about killing everyone. This is not only my favorite line in the movie, it is maybe my favorite line in any movie I've ever heard. And I, I will try to do it in the terrible Italian accent. May I suggest that instead of killing Kimball, we just control him using a brain implant I have invented. <laughs> and it's delivered with about that level of menace, too. <laughs> May I suggest that instead of brandy, we have whiskey tonight. It, I did like that, that that might be the only actual reference to his superior intelligence. Yes. <laughs> yes. All right. All right, Bester, there's, I know what you're going to Well, talk actually, about. no, I think I, there's two things. One, I want to go back from that scene you're talking about with Ned Beatty, and then there's another thing immediately after that. First of all, the scene before that, that's what's happening. So somewhere in the Arctic, uh, Captain America gets dug up. He essentially punches his way out of this ice, and he flees the Ar- uh, Alaska. And exactly then he ends up happened. somewhere in British Columbia, it seems. That seems to be where he is at this point. And somehow, and this is in no way ever explained how this happens, both Ned Beatty, who just happened to get into a car and is driving aimlessly around the British Columbia forest. He's not aimless. No, I mean, to be fair, he had been sent there. He had been the sent there, but the, the only information he had been given was they found this guy in Alaska. And he's somehow I just driving still around in Alaska. No, they specify Canada. They do specify Canada. I assume that he is driving from the Washington D.C. area. By the way, so he has been driving again. Going back to the flow of time, I just like in this to film. think that the scriptwriter didn't understand the difference between Washington State and Washington <laughs> D.C. Even even assuming that he just happens to be driving through British Columbia, right where Captain America is, and at the literally at the exact same time. Uh, the Red Skull's daughter's uh, elite motorcycle kill squad of sexy ladies come down in a helicopter and start chasing him through the uh, British Columbian uh, forest. <laughs> somehow, they all just somehow managed to all converge on the exact same point with absolutely no no uh, explanation being given as to how they all found each other at this specific point. I actually, while watching the movie, had to rewind back because I assumed I had somehow missed... Some explanation for how this confluence had happened. It is not given. It just happens. Uh, and then afterwards, we now need to talk about Captain America's signature move. His, his cunning gambit. <laughs> so, here's what happens. And this, the first time he does this, he's in the car with Ned Beatty. Ned Beatty's uh, giving him this info dump on how, uh, on how all these people that he's never heard of have been assassinated. And Captain America says, pull over. Uh, and Ned Beatty is like, what, what are you talking about? And, and Captain America insists, okay, I need to pull over. And he hops out of the car and he, start, and he like buck, buckles over on the side of the road. And Ned Beatty comes over to check on him to see if uh, he's okay, if he's throwing up. And Captain America bolts back to the car and steals it. And what's most amazing of all is that he does this again like an hour later in the movie. <laughs> yes. When he and Birdie's daughter, played by Birdie, uh, are in uh, Italy, he literally does the exact same thing. He just goes, pull over. He's, he's over on the side of the road in some Italian village. She comes over and he steals her car. This And, and the, the exact line that Matt Salinger delivers is, pull over. I am going to be sick. Yes. To to be fair, God. if it worked once, why would he not try it again? 
<laughs> yes. But I feel like I feel like I need a rule of three kind of thing. If it had happened three times in the film, I'd be okay. I'm totally on board with this. And the third time, it's not like the he was trying it the red again skull. with Ned Beatty. <laughs> no, Ned Beatty is very very soon afterwards murdered, so he does not have a chance yes. to do that again. Uh, yeah, I know, but it would be ridiculous if he had tried it with the same character again, or someone else who had known about it. <laughs> to be fair, Ned Beatty would totally fall for that a second time. So, so <laughs> c- contextually, N- Ned Beatty is the—he's a reporter, right? He's yeah. the reporter friend yeah, of yeah. the president of the United States. The president um, from childhood. From childhood uh, he, he has. They they have uh, Captain America like decoder rings. Which no, they're oh, okay. no, it's, it's they're not decoder rings or something else. Captain, yeah, they can't be Captain America Dakota rings. Yeah, because no, no, no one knew. Yeah, no one knew who Captain America was. A and B, Captain America had one mission in which he was strapped (laughs) to a rocket and then frozen. (laughs) Yeah, we should we should point out they they share superhero Dakota rings because he really knocked that rocket off course. Yes, we need to talk about this. The most amazing (laughs) thing is that he did it at the last second. He went the entirety of of the transatlantic journey and did nothing until he was within. Like half a mile of the White House. Yeah. So he's strapped to this rocket, and the future president of the United States has snuck out uh, and is taking pictures of the White House and sees this rocket coming. And America, uh, Captain America's uh, move here, how he how he gets out of this bind, is he kicks the rocket. He is kicking the rocket with his heel, and he does this enough times that the rocket goes off course four thousand miles. <laughs> Oh, because it ends up in fucking Alaska. If if super soldiers were such a you know a key to the war theoretically, when America loses its super soldier, how does how do the Nazis then not win with their super soldier and also their intercontinental missiles? Because nothing nothing happens. Like Red Skull loses his hand, but it's not like he's killed or in suspended animation. Yeah, like he's fine. Nothing gets destroyed. The technology is safe. Like the the oh, okay, so maybe that's it. Maybe this is why the Red Skull is uh, Italian instead of German. Because we, as an audience, watch the film, and if we know that the Nazi Red Skull still has these horrifying weapons, then oh, America might lose the war. But if it's Mussolini's Italy that has the weapons, like ah, <laughs> there's fine. a certain there's a certain bumbling to Mussolini. Yeah, exactly. Can I just say that that this could have been this huge plot hole could have been solved (laughs) in this way, this easily, if he had held, if Captain America had been able to hold on to him, and then he had like cut off his his hand over the Atlantic Ocean and fallen into the ocean and then been lost (laughs) through the rest of the war, but still recovered like ten years later, uh, still you know forty years before Captain America. then, Look, then the, this would be solved easily. No, the Red Skull was so traumatized by having to cut off his own hand that he just sulked for the rest of the war. Nothing happened. He does mention at one point uh, in the the present that um, you know back in the war when I was known as the Red Skull. No. I mean, th- there is the implication that he has kind of left that identity behind a little bit. Although without adopting any other identity or using and any name, he didn't. No, lose he is using his, his name. His He's super status. <laughs> he absolutely is using another name. He's using the name from before uh, when he was a kid. Because half of the movie is about 
uh, Birdie Jr. <laughs> oh. and Captain America having to figure out yeah. this little boy's name because if they we don't have know, nothing ever if they don't know that. his yeah. name, they can never find him. Apparently, he's got okay. like some so, sort of so, name magic. Yeah. So, so I. <laughs> Because I didn't understand that at all. Like, yeah. I did not understand why it was a plot point. I didn't understand why it was important. And I didn't understand what the payoff was. Well, Ned Beatty, in his big info dump, mentions that the Red Skull is still around, and he's now an Italian businessman, and he's using the name that was his name before he was the Red Skull. But nobody knows mm-hmm. what that name is. And apparently, if you find that name, bingo, bingo, you've got the Red Skull. As opposed <laughs> to saying... Hey, are there any really weird-looking one-handed Italian businessmen who seem to wield uh, too much power? Nobody thought to say, hey, that guy's one-handed, and he looks insane. Maybe that's the Red Skull over there. Wait, did he still only fair, have one hand? I thought he had Berlusconi. a prosthetic hand. I mean, he had a, yeah, I, I mean, he had a, he had a fake hand, but I mean, I figure some people mm-hmm. might have noticed, like, dealing with him, like, oh, hey, Vito yeah, over there has got a fake hand. Can, also, he. My he question, has, my question is why, if, if Ned Beatty is like buddy buddy with the president, and he has all of this information about the Red Skull, why are they not like? Why did, haven't they sent like the CIA yeah, to Italy because nobody, to look for the Red because Skull? Because they are they are operating as conspiracy theorists. They don't. Nobody else believes them. The president says, "Hey, nobody I else think, believes the, the nobody president." Else, yeah, the president does not have the sway to say, "All right, I have all of this evidence that this guy exists. Go find him." No, he and his best friend from when he was six have to do this in their off time, and then Captain America shows up and Ned Beatty info dumps all of this information. It does seem like the pre- the president of the United States, after the end of the Cold War, was suddenly lacking in resources. Yes. Can we- I don't think we ever... Do we ever see a full shot of, like, the Oval Office? We see his desk several times. No, I don't think they had the budget but, like, for that. He- it's yeah, yeah he could, say, he it's could have been in an office for resources. It's the production team. Yes. <laughs> God, <laughs> that's true. Can we talk for just a minute about Birdie and Sharon? Yes. Because <laughs> yes, we can. Uh, I really don't know what to make of this. Um, so Birdie is an established Captain America love interest from the comics, and Sharon Carter is Captain America's most enduring love interest from the comics. Um, Sharon in the film is clearly a reference to that particular version of the character. I understand, again, going back to the idea that Cap's defining, or Steve Rogers' defining characteristic in this film is that he is in love with this woman. I understand you play that for pretty significant pathos once he's unthawed. But the the scenes with them just I don't uh, again maybe it's the budget rearing its ugly head because that was not very convincing old woman makeup. No. Maybe it's the fact that again we know nothing about any of these people in any substantial way. Maybe it's the fact that um, Matt Salinger is un- incapable of conveying any human emotion. Yeah, they have absolutely no chemistry. <laughs> yeah. yeah. N- none of these scenes... Th- this was supposed to be the heart of the film. Yeah. And they completely fell flat. And I think it's worth trying to understand that. Well, I mean, as we've talked about, Birdie herself is in the movie for maybe all of two minutes. There's like a very brief scene where right before he's shipped off to become Captain America, he speaks with Birdie and they say their goodbyes. 
And then he finds her again after uh, hitching a ride inside a truck to get from Canada. Uh, a Molson truck. A Molson truck with some nice product placement right there. Uh, and he shows up, and, like, the next day, the Italian uh, motorcycle hit squad shows up and murders Birdie. So, again, and we Ned know... Beatty. And Ned Beatty. And Ned Beatty. And almost kill the father. Um... So again, she's like just giving him a heart attack. <laughs> what? I said the father looked a lot like Stacy Keach. That, that's all I had to add. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, and the, the father. The father's lines in the movie are basically like "what" and "duh." Yes. <laughs> and one of my favorite moments in the whole movie is after after he shows up at Bertie's house and he's getting to know uh, Sharon. Uh, he walks in and she's watching on television. Like, a greatest hits reel of assassinations in post-war America. <laughs> like, she's just watching, like, archival footage of the Kennedy funeral and the Martin Luther King funeral and RFK getting shot. And this is how he's convinced that, that uh, Ned Beatty was telling the truth. She just happens to, apropos of almost nothing, find all of this footage that, uh, that clarifies all of these tragedies in American history. Uh, and th- th- this is pre-YouTube, pre-internet. It's not like she could go track this stuff down. So she had a tape on hand and it's of not, all of this and it's, stuff. And it's not like she's even specifically showing it to him. Like, it's not like he asks and she says, oh, I have this tape. He literally, she is just watching it. And he walks in on her watching it and sits down and learns about RFK being shot. Bertie, does, does your daughter watch this a lot? I think your daughter's screwed up, Bertie. Yeah, it's just, What? <laughs> It must have been nice uh, in the 40s never to have to change the, the typesetting every day as a newspaper man because uh, the headline was always War Rages in Europe and Pacific. Uh, <laughs> uh, the, right. the secret lair. It was the secret lair or the secret lab uh, under yes. the diner. That oh, Okay, wait a minute. So your secret lab oh. is not on a military base. It's out in public for no reason. Uh, mm-hmm. And... The, the diner, okay, I'll, I'll accept that maybe the diner is very popular. It didn't go out of business in, how long was it? 40 years, I guess. Uh, uh, it never Good changed dish. from a diner to anything else. Uh, but then they get down to the secret lab, and it's lit by a window. Who has a window in their secret lab? <laughs> I, I actually, I, I actually nope. had a note about, nobody, about Nobody this. said secret labs have to be gloomy, all right? <laughs> It's bringing a little light into but their lives, dude. The, the note that have I have you never heard of the was... secret window? Oh my god! No, the uh... check and mate, my friend. Check and mate. Uh, it turns out at the end no, the, that uh... guy is actually Johnny Depp. <laughs> Thank you. Way to ruin the movie, asshole. <laughs> Sorry, John. Oh, I'll, I'll go weird. back in it anyway. and du- dub in the spoiler horn. Yeah, you say that guy like that could mean Johnny Depp is actually Johnny Depp. <laughs> yeah, no, I haven't the, seen the, the movie. <laughs> my my theory on the window because we have to have a theory about the window actually plays into something that comes up at several other scenes of the film. Uh, every uh, area, with the exception of the Canadian wilderness, in which we have an action sequence suffers from some kind of incredibly poor lighting. 
Yes. And that has to just be to cover up the fact that they could not afford any kind of stunt coordinator or action director of any kind. (laughs) Or a graceful actor. Or a graceful actor. It's also possible that they just could not afford good lighting. (laughs) I, th- I think there. I think there is some uh, some ulterior aesthetic motives here, though. I don't think it's just lack of budget here. I think I think it probably is yeah. covering up d- other deficiencies. Mm. To be fair, well, there, I, I mean, I watched this yeah. on YouTube, so I don't have any idea what the actual quality of the film looks like because it, it was it's not very HD, poor YouTube yeah. quality. No. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it is very original remastered DVD or anything. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it looks stunning in HD. We just don't know. Yeah. Mm. Uh, uh, <laughs> In addition to the the subtlety, the subtly uh, good choices that were made with the the lighting, I'd like to mention how high quality the music was and how very subtle it was through the entirety of the film. <laughs> I think there was only one sequence that that did not give me the entirety of what I was supposed to be feeling emotionally, and that was <laughs> the chase sequence set to like kind of poppy Italian music. I'm not clear what choice that was, but it did not. <laughs> What my was fa- going on? <laughs> my favorite mo- music in in the movie was there's two lyrical songs in the movie at least that I remember. One is during the montage after he lands in Alaska that that updates us up to the present day and gets Kimball into office. And then there's what they play over uh, the closing credits. And in both cases, it's being sung by like the low rent, <laughs> very cheap, off grade Bob Seger. Thank you. I, it, the that beginning is, of that song sounded exactly like Against the Wind. I know. It's very, I mean, it's absolutely like Ghostbusters here, let, make a Huey Lewis song. Obviously, somebody said, yeah. we cannot physically afford Bob Seger. That's just not a possibility. Wait, 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 you, wait, wait, God, uh, hold, hold on, give hold. us two let, Bob Seger songs. Let, let, let's point out for a second. It, we're talking about Bob Seger, all right? Bob Seger does not come terribly expensive in the grand pantheon of, like, filmic pop stars. Bob Seger is the poor man's John Mellencamp, who is the poor man's Bruce Springsteen. You will not say an unkind word about Bob Seger, okay? I don't care how poor the usage Uh of Like a Rock is in those Chevy commercials. That is a good song. I I was sure that you were... I don't remember. I was sure you were going to you were jumping to the defense of Bob Cougar or John Cougar Mellencamp. Bob Cougar Mellencamp. Bob, Bob Cougar Springsteen. Bob Cougar Springsteen. I I have to uh, I have to admit that I may be the only person I know who genuinely likes a lot of Bob Seger songs. You're the first I've encountered. You're yeah. the only person I know who likes Bob Seger. <laughs> uh, while I we're say on the that topic, I necessarily like him, but I do like several of his songs. Okay. Now wait. Are you about to say while we're on the topic of Bob Seger? No. Because if you're not, I'm, okay. <laughs> no. While we're on the topic of the secret lair, this goes back to something the mm-hmm. dudes brought up. The secret lair is where we get the random ninja. Yes, that's because true. it's while also they're in the where secret. We find la- the uh, the MacGuffin diary. Yes. Yes. It's it's absolutely <laughs> like the best definition of a MacGuffin I can possibly imagine. It's this thing that everybody cares about but literally nobody knows why. Like, even the audience during the film is not convinced (laughs) as to its importance. So it's a very poorly constructed MacGuffin, but it's definitely a MacGuffin. Why why on earth was this lab not cleaned out? 
Like, what, <laughs> what sequence of events could conceivably have led to everything being left in exactly the same places, except it being drywalled over? Well, yeah, to be it, fair, isn't isn't one the 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 primary general, the old man general? Uh, it wasn't he uh, one of the guys involved in the. Uh, in the I'm Captain America experiments sure. back in the day, so he might have I'm, been in uh, the uh, not the Gray Skulls, the uh, the Red Skulls pocket back then. So maybe he was able to pull his sway. Even less sense as to why very key information would have been left in a random <laughs> desk and nothing yeah. was cleaned out, and it was just it's, boarded over. <laughs> I don't yes. even think that desk was locked. Like it's not like this highly crucial notebook was hit. Like hidden. Mm-hmm. This is this is quite this literally the this only just a thing she this is, ever wrote down. This is the diary <laughs> of the woman who kept everything in her head. <laughs> yes, and it's it's not. So locked then, there's up. nothing not of value in it. Anything. It's all in her head. Think about what you're exactly. saying, man. <laughs> but I mean, for for all we care, it might as well have been a book of blank pages because it literally. Like, it's true. Yeah. The only the only useful information it provides is telling them where uh, Red Skull's childhood home was, which barely provides them any any information whatsoever. But oh, again, man. I really I really want to circle back to this random ninja because it's definitely one of the defining moments okay. of the film for I, I, me. Let's get let's get ninja in. Let's do well. Ninja's Excuse probably me, you're not, not circling exact. back. You're boomeranging. I'm boomeranging. Um. I, ninja's probably not the best way to put it, because it's certainly not ninjas in the way that uh, that the Punisher enemies were martial ninjas. artists. How about that? He's Those a, guys. He's, he's a random. Yeah. He's a random Asian henchman with a katana, essentially. So while they're in this secret lab, this poorly poorly hidden, poorly cleaned out secret lab, the Gray Skull's daughter's motorcycle hit squad. The Red Skull. Excuse me. The Red Skull's daughter's <laughs> motorcycle sexy hit squad Gray shows skull. up. Uh, and this, this team seems to be made of the daughter and two or three other women and this one random Asian guy. That seems to be the entirety of this hit squad. Uh, He's the buck. He's, apparently. (laughs) Um, and so he shows up, and at one point, Captain America is holding him, demanding information, and when he gets the information, he throws this man, like, into a laundry chute or, like, an air vent to his death. He just randomly throws him into the wall and he falls to uh, into a abyss that's in this secret lab. Yeah. That's what happens. Dude, as you brought up the random ninja earlier, did you have anything else to add on the randomness uh, of this man with a katana for no apparent reason? No, no. no that, that was it. <laughs> I, I will say it is our streak of Marvel Comics films that includes... A strange and outlandish Asian stereotype is now at three, and we've watched <laughs> yes. three. Films. We are three for three. This is significant somehow. Yeah. This this attests this, to some uh, sort of cultural phenomenon. The Reagan something about Reagan Bush years and Asia Asia phobia. Asia phobia, nice. Asia phobia, the yellow menace, the yes. wrath of Fu Manchu. Um, oh, on that note, on that note. The only I've been waiting for a moment to bring this up. Otherwise, I thought I was just going to have to insert it randomly, as you may arguably say I am doing now. Uh, the <laughs> only thing that I know about Captain America comics is that he was used to sell war bonds during World War II with the slogan "Slap a Jap for Cap." <laughs> <laughs> yep. 
So yep. we have a and long history of Marvel Comics associating itself with a fear of the Yellow Menace. Yes, I suppose thematically speaking, <laughs> this makes the most sense in a in a Captain America movie. Captain America yeah, and, a and being Comics like property. We, yeah, I mean mm. Punisher made no goddamn sense. But here, here there's something. But even then, it's just this one random Asian guy yeah. with a samurai maybe sword. Maybe they, maybe they only had the budget for one Asian guy and one samurai sword. I I know I should have said this during the uh, the discussion of uh, canon films, but um, can we talk about this uh, as a Marvel Comics property? Because I assume that this is wait for it non canonical. (laughs) (laughs) No, so this is actually so again we we've had three Marvel films so far. This made in 1990. This is post the uh, post Tim Burton Batman. This is the first Marvel film that I've found record of where the fact that it was Marvel Comics was explicitly used as a selling point. Stan Lee was very actively involved in the promotion of this film. Yeah, I noticed... I'm shocked. I noticed. Yeah, I noticed that, of Stan. I noticed that he was an executive <laughs> producer on this. Has he, was he a producer in any of the other two that we've watched? Uh, I don't believe he was. I did not he see his had, name. He had nothing to do with creating Howard the Duck. He may have named the Punisher, but he had nothing to do with the film. But this, he there was a great bit. So, believe it or not, this film failed miserably in test screenings. Shocking. <laughs> and they went back for reshoots. And Stan Lee, in a classic Stan Lee faces the world and lies through his teeth moment, build this as... Well, you know, the audience, they loved the film so much that we had to go back and give them more. <laughs> so he, he, he was all in on promoting this film. I have to say, your uh, Stan so- Lee sounds a lot like Derek's screenwriter. <laughs> <laughs> um, or does yeah, so, Derek's so this- screenwriter sound a lot like the real Stan Lee? <laughs> Excelsior! <Yes. laughs> No, but that, that's interesting because when we talked about the Punisher, we talked about this not the Punisher not being sold as a Marvel film. In fact, taking great pains to not appear as a comic book film, mm-hmm. and yeah, so that this does, one did that does offer this film some kind of uh, recognition as mm-hmm. as one of the first, uh, well, at least from uh, Marvel as a company, one mm-hmm. of the first deliberately comic book films. So, so what would be... Well, I mean, arguably this is the first... I mean, Captain America maybe isn't the biggest named superhero, but I mean, in terms of Marvel superheroes, he's certainly one of the bigger named ones. I mean, he was a big deal in World War II. Whereas I imagine most people, when The Punisher had come out, had never heard of The Punisher. So tying it to Marvel Comics doesn't yeah. really get you anything. A little bit more of a brand to sell. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think there's yeah. truth to that. I, I think that the... Um, it's the notably after that, Batman, though. Yeah, the fact that Batman had come out yeah. had said to the world that these films can make loads of money. Um, I also think part of it, you know, when we were running down the list of canon films that had been produced, one of the films and there was they did Superman 4, The Quest for Peace, which is a similarly environmentally themed movie. It is also a similarly oh, okay. terrible movie in, in a lot of different ways. Um... Is that the one where he fights Nuclear Man? 
It's the one where he fights nuclear man, yeah, and rids the world of nuclear it's, weapons. Oh. Okay, but Richard Pryor is in Superman three, right? Superman three, yes. Yes. Um, this is okay. this is the one. Uh, so I own the box set. With, uh, this is the two I've not watched. Okay. okay. So it, it's Canon uh, had had one superhero film experience before, and they owned the rights to Captain America and Spider Man. Maybe the fact that they had had that experience with Superman four gave them the. <laughs> Thank you. Gave them the uh, the confidence to pursue a full blown superhero movie. There's part of me that th- that initially thought, well, maybe they're doing it this way because they're going to sell it to kids. I don't think that the film that made the Kennedy assassinations a key plot point was really aimed at kids. Um. So I I I don't know. I mean, may- maybe the Burton Batman explanation is the best one. Like they yeah. they figured, hey, you can make money selling. Selling the is there character. is there any indication why they chose if they had the rights for both they chose Captain America over Spider Man because at least from my perspective Spider Man is the, is the more bankable commodity and I realize that this is after the Sam Raimi movies and after the cartoon movies we all go well in budget on. in budget terms it's probably easier to do this it is true yeah I mean, you don't you don't have to and have you again one of the interesting aspects of old Marvel media is even though they didn't get into film until later had a huge television presence. Yeah. Have you ever seen the terrible Spider-Man TV movies from the 70s? Is that the one with Spider-Man? Spider-Man no, does that, whatever that was the a spider old can. Um, oh. The TV movies of the 70s, no. um, the the budget showed. <laughs> like, it, it was... They'd also had the, the, ex- the Hulk television show. Yeah. Yep. Hulk television show. There had been a, a few Hulk TV movies, Captain America TV movies. There was a Doctor Strange TV movie. Doctor Strange, really? Uh, yeah. Um, co-starring Jessica Walter as the, the villain. <laughs> a young Jessica Walter. <laughs> okay. As Morgan Le Fay. All right. I can see that. Um, I can see that. Yeah. And, and then, you know, a long history of animated properties through the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Um, can... So, like, that, that pedigree was there. And, and may, maybe if they... Maybe they wanted to make a Spider-Man film. The the we'll talk about this more when we talk about Raimi's Spider-Man, mostly because I think we're unprepared to talk about it now. The rights drama surrounding Spider-Man was a huge issue for about a decade and a half before mm-hmm. Raimi's film got made. So that might have had some issue. Uh, Makes some sense. Issue. Can we talk uh, about? Yeah, can we talk about how incredible President Prison Break is? <laughs> because he straight kicks through Ready that door. <laughs> and and then he gets shot in the shoulder and then punches out the shooter with that arm. <laughs> He's just this that good. To, to a larger point, we have, we've hardly talked at all about Ronnie Cox. We need to talk <laughs> about true. Ronnie Cox a little bit. Cohagen. 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 Derek, I believe. Derek, I think there's a line you need to give us. <laughs> really, I have to dance. Yes. Yeah, dance, monkey. Cohagen, give this people air. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, no, Ronnie Cox as the uh, the crusading war hero president who is going to have the brain implant put in him. <laughs> um, again, th- this is a film that is defined in a lot of ways, by really terrible casting choices. Ronnie Cox actually 
acquits himself. Yeah, it kind of works. He's a veteran. He knows exactly what he's doing. He plays sort of the <laughs> like the right balance between sober authority and then when he actually meets Captain America, sort of boyish awe. Yeah. He d- and he I think fun. Ned Beatty works Ned too. Beatty? I mean, Darren Ned, McGavin Ned... Was, was yeah. fun? Yeah, I mean, there's some very good character actors uh, from this era that are sort of in the periphery of this movie. But in terms Given nothing to do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, those three are all very good. I mean, Ned Beatty's probably in about five minutes tops of this movie. Uh, Darren McGavin's probably in less. And honestly, Ronnie Cox, up until like the final showdown after he becomes president of Prison Break, he's probably in like two minutes of the movie. <laughs> I'm ge- I'm guessing that they were all paid based on the number of hours they worked. Probably. Maybe even the number of minutes they worked. Because they certainly were not doing retakes. <laughs> oh my god. Alright. Um, oh, what a terrible film. Let's talk about the piano. Hold on, everything first. Yes! Okay. We need to talk about the piano. What? I missed what the Derek said yes to. Oh, uh, we need to talk about uh, the piano. Red Skull's piano at the very end of the movie. When, when he runs out to the mm-hmm. top of his fortress... His random Italian castle a, on a on a there's a very nice grand piano at the at the top of the tower of his completely like exposed to the elements equipped, fully equipped with a dirty yes. bar. Yep. <laughs> it, it looked like if he if he had sat behind that piano, it could have been the album cover of like any like 1960s or 70s smooth jazz album. Oh yeah, it's very it's a very music video kind of a setting. He's doing his best Burt Bacharach yeah, exactly. thing. It was a it was a Burt Bacharach piano. It's exactly yeah. So yeah, a, a piano on top of a castle in Italy would be make for a fantastic music video. It's a very odd choice for a supervillain, and a very a very odd choice for the climax of your film, particularly because a. We've not set up that there's any kind of dirty bomb or that this is any kind of threat we should be aware of. B, the threat lasts for about a minute and a half. It's less of a threat and more <laughs> of a distraction. Yes. Really? Yeah. Um, see, that piano's never played. Yeah, well, if... It, I, D, you could, you could also, is, like... Why is he still concerned with the piano when he has lost his hand? <laughs> well as we as it was established he is a piano prodigy maybe he's, he's so good prodigy. that he can still play really well with a fake hand yep. can you play I mean, the piano I would buy that anymore? if it were ever addressed in the film again like the lack of his not having you know both hands never brought up again after he loses, oh, yeah, like literally, hand. literally, there's the scene where they're where he's in the car with his daughter, and he gets the newspaper that tells him that Captain America was found in the Antarctic, in not the Antarctic, in Alaska, uh, and they dug him up. And there's a very brief shot to like his uh, wrist, and you can see that he's got a prosthesis. That is literally mm-hmm. the only time that that I, comes up, and I think the only point of that is to establish that, yes, this is actually Red Skull, yep. because he's in his new yeah, makeup. Because he, he, um, he clearly doesn't surgery. look like I, it. Th- this is not the film's fault, I think, so much as the fact that I watched a low-quality yeah, version well, on YouTube. Let's, let's not withhold judgment just yet. <laughs> I, I was not clear what had happened during that missile sequence until Derek read the summary. Uh, 
because <laughs> I think that's the, more the fault of editing. Well, it, it's love, also the I fact love, that it was a really low quality YouTube video. But I love the shot of him cutting his hand off because this is how he does it. He very slowly brings a knife down on the arm, and then it immediately cuts to have it, the knife having sliced through it. Like this is in no way the amount force necessary to chop through your arm in one movement. That's probably a lot of what was unclear to me then. Um, yeah. Yeah, because it looked like he had just, like, stabbed Captain America or something, so. Yeah. To be fair, there were a lot of points that I was like, oh, is that what was happening? That uh, Derek's uh, summary. <laughs> yeah. As, as Stefan yeah. said, Derek's summary is a much more, co much more coherent plot than what we are presented here. <laughs> oh, yeah. It, it's not even close. Well, it is... It is one of those plots that, like, you don't really notice the holes until they're enacted. No, no, we noticed the holes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those holes were... Well, no, oh. even even when I was writing the summary, I was like, you know, there's actually a surprising amount of, you know, twists and turns that happen in this script. But then you, I was, you see the thing sort of in toto, and it's like, oh, yeah, that doesn't actually make sense. There was that whole setup that isn't I actually was, I was surprised off. how long it took you to read the, uh, the plot summary. A lot because, of stuff happens yeah, in this I remember, movie. like, when you were yeah. reading it, I was like, well, this is going to take, like, 30 seconds. Then you just kept going, and dude was eating like an asshole, which was making it very difficult <laughs> to get through that. Um, I was trying yeah. to entertain you while the audience received the plot summary, okay? That was for you guys, okay? That was performance art that cannot be repeated. Please don't repeat it. <laughs> oh, I'm gonna. Yeah. I very distinctly remember the entire time, particularly once they get to Italy. I'm like, why are they here? Why do they need his name? It's very yeah. poorly explained. Like, I think I've come up with the explanation that they were going for. I think that's why they needed it. But the film does not do a very good job of explaining what they gain from knowing Red Skull's name. And then ultimately, well, I don't believe how they find him even involves knowing his name. They steal, or they end up with nope. the daughter's purse... Which gives them the address, I guess? <laughs> which which begs the question, why does she keep the address of their secret castle lair in her She's got purse? a really bad memory. She, 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 she can't find her way back. <laughs> Pedantic moment, not how beg your question, begs the question works. That's not what that phrase means. <laughs> well, I'm sorry, you yeah. dick. That's one for the pedant. Please demonstrate for us the correct use of that phrase. I can't, because it's very... Oh, wait. No, wait, 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 wait. Wait, wait. The opposite of what I just said. Okay. I won't. Or I will? I don't know. Which, which It begs which the question. Begs which one did I mean? It doesn't beg the question. That's not what <laughs> begs the question means. What all of this begs the question of... God damn I think it. I just used it more poorly than either of you. Um, either? Is... Either, either? Well, either of those are fine, but either is not. I said either. Maybe. I heard either. Not, not to be pedantic about it. Too late. <laughs> Wait, so what does begs the question mean? How is the right. prop, what is the proper use of begs the Please enlighten us. Begs today. the question uh, <laughs> is essentially when you are setting up an argument and you... Uh, Present something that you are trying Boring. that you're trying to pr prove, but you use it in such a way that you are already assuming that it's true. So, like, mm. if you are trying to prove that killing is evil, and in your set of argument, the solution is thus killing or 
that if like you present like as one of your pieces of evidence killing is evil, that's begging the question. It's essentially assuming that something that you're trying to argue is already true. Which begs the question, kind of logical what fallacy. is terrible about this film? What isn't? <laughs> no, seriously, I mean, um, what, what, I, what are... There were a couple things that I really liked. Um, okay. I, I liked the, the fact that it was an environmental message, and that's just a personal thing for me, uh, because I feel like this is, again, an early example of a film that raised the question of uh, what the hell is America doing to the environment? Uh, but also, well, I, the, I, I would say it, it didn't so much raise that question as quickly gloss over that question. That's fair. But it mentioned it in passing, <laughs> at least, and used it as a plot point. So yes. it, it didn't. Second. The fact that it was mentioned at all is impressive to me, um, since it's, it's a question that we're still asking anyone to do anything about 23 years later. Uh, but the, the fact that they never made a big deal out of the it's a major plot point that one boy in the entirety of America is ever exposed to Captain America as a hero and that boy the the, the influence that this heroic figure has on him is so great that he goes on to, to actually become the president of the United States which to me is I don't know it's it's a valuable message that um the the power and actual influence that one individual can have when exposed to a single heroic figure in their life. And it, you could say that it's poorly written in that this is never explicitly discussed in the film, but I like that it's just a background message that uh, they don't ever make a big deal out of it. It's just one of the things that happens. Hmm. I, I think right. c conceptually that's fair. I think it was executed very poorly, but the the <laughs> there's truth in that basic idea. Yeah. Okay. I'll, okay. That that's I'll fair. give you that. <laughs> I'll so, allow so, score one for the movie. <laughs> okay. I will beg the question. <laughs> <laughs> if we pull back a little bit, though, um, the film did not make any money. Like it, it was it was a disaster on that front. It is a very bad movie. It is an oddly faithful in parts and oddly unfaithful in other parts adaptation of the character. That's kind of middling there. And I, I think as we kind of speed toward the finish here, I think it's worth stepping back and saying, okay, what are the key things that went wrong here? Like, wh what are the elements of this film that really defined its its failure. I mean, budget I, limitations. I think that's the main... I think even before budget limitations, I think it's a script problem. I mean, it's just... It's not a very good script. Um, it's, it's, it's written in a very... Um, I don't want to say... It, I mean, it is formulaic, um, but it's... it's. I mean, the seams really show. <laughs> like... <laughs> um, and you can probably say that about you know the other Marvel films that we talked about, but it's it's they sh the 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 structural problems in the script are they're not glaring enough to where there there there's like an obvious problem, but it's just little little setups that just aren't paid off. Mm -hmm. You know, through lines that are kind of ghosts of through lines, um, 
And I think, like, I, I could deal with the, the kind of shoddy look of things. And, you know, I think that's a result of budget problems. But um, I think there was a way to write this script in a low budget way that would have that would have succeeded and they just didn't they didn't find it. Dude, what do you think the the key problem in the film was? Um I I enjoyed this movie, so it's hard <laughs> <laughs> it's hard for me okay, to. Okay, so it's in descending you. Please explain. Have you been like holding this in this entire time? <laughs> Why didn't you start with this? <laughs> um, I because I saw it as a kid. I I remember it fondly. Uh, so it's it's hard for me to discuss it now. Having I watched it more as a child than I have now. Like I, yeah. I, I saw it at least two or three times when I was a kid, and I watched it once now, and it, it's not good, but at least I remembered having watched it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and it's just to me, it's how do I put this? Sorry, dude. It did not hurt me to watch it the way that Howard the Duck. <laughs> hurt me <laughs> uh, that, that, that's fair the film did not psychologically abuse you no no there was no point when when i was like how how much longer do i have to sit here i i was never <laughs> i was never clawing my eyes out or or having to tape myself to the chair or anything to continue watching this uh, I, would, I would agree with admittedly that. it also helped that i watched it in in two parts um uh, because mm-hmm. I, I watched the first half and then I had to leave the house and then come back and watch the second half. But um, it, uh, I, I mean, obviously it suffers from lack of any real star or star power or acting. Like, there were no acting powerhouses in this. It, it, it felt very low budget. Um, How dare you say that about Ronnie Cox? Very. <laughs> uh, the the writing was I mean, not to great. add on yeah go ahead go ahead derek yeah I t- to add on to that i think you know if you're going to talk about acting like matt it's sort of like the punisher i mean matt salinger yeah. really just like fails oh, yeah. here. <laughs> this was this was gonna like coming around that i think that this is actually the key problem in the movie and it was the it was the same key problem with the punisher like it, it whatever you build around your central character um ultimately Matt Salinger has to carry the movie because it he is the center of it everything is revolving around him he is the character whose dramatic arc we are expected to follow he does not embody what the character is about he doesn't embody the general decency of Captain America and, and that strong moral center and he also it in addition to being that, because like he could be miscast and give a pretty good performance, he was miscast and gave a terrible performance. <laughs> on on that note of decency, uh, now, now Captain America just, should not be stealing cars. Just, <laughs> just to be fair, like I think, <laughs> it's true. Uh, to be fair, I think you know if you're going to, it is a script problem that Matt Salinger has to carry the movie. 
Um, which is why I think ultimately, like, that's a script issue. And yes, Matt Salinger's performance yeah. is, is pretty bad. But there was, again, I think there was a way to make this film where, okay, maybe your Captain America isn't very interesting. But Captain America isn't a very interesting character to begin with. Like, um, <laughs> there was a way to make this um, make this movie such that maybe Red Skull um, can carry a little bit more of it. Mm-hmm. Um and the fact that, you know, Red Skull's performance wasn't really that much better than Matt Salinger's is also a problem. I mean, there, but there would have been a way to write a script, script such that you could kind of dance around mm. all of that and resolve some of those issues. Um, but no, I mean, the, the script is so kind of formula- formulaic and straightforward as a kind of like hero piece that you really need a hero, <laughs> you know, in, in well, both plot I- and, a- and acting terms in order to make it work. Uh, that that brings up a point that, um, to me, how do I put this? The hero in the film is not Captain America. The hero is the president. Is the, the president? Yes. Captain America is <laughs> yeah. defending the president, who is. I mean, this is like this is like Air Force One in that this is the president that I want. You know, this is get off of my plane. <laughs> like this is a man who who is shot in the shoulder and then punches out the man who shot him with that arm. Obviously, that's an editing problem. And he's the most compelling still, thing in the film. But again, but again, for the character. But again, to get uh, into what they, uh, Derek was talking oh. about. Uh, just that he's, he's standing up for the things that I care about, and he actually has a, a strength of purpose that we have not had in a president in a very long time. I mean, I don't remember ever in my lifetime there being a president that I looked at and and thought, like that is a guy who is standing up for his principles and isn't like doing what's political or following the party line. So what you're saying is you'd vote for Ronnie Cox. Obviously. Yes. Well, I mean, to go back to go back to Derek's point, I mean, I think I, I think it could have been a very interesting movie if it had been about the president. But as we've said, yeah. <laughs> the president's in probably about five minutes of this movie. Maybe a little bit more there at the very, very end when he's sort of being Air Force One action president. But if if you would really develop that character a bit more, yeah, that could be quite interesting. Um, but again, yeah, I mean, not not even just in terms of the actor being bad, but I mean, the char- as we've talked about previously, I mean, Captain America in this movie is a very passive figure. He's not he 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 gets told to jump out of an airplane and he goes fight fight some Nazis and he ends up on a rocket and then Ned Beatty comes and tells him that Red Skull's doing all this shit. And then Sharon starts uh, taking him around, and Sharon seems to be the one who kind of takes charge and seems to have sort of the clever ideas as to how to go about doing this. But then again, we have another character that isn't nearly developed enough to be sort of the interesting lead. Again, if any of these sort of things on the periphery of Captain America, if Sharon or the president or Ned Beatty or Red Skull or Red Skull's daughter or the random ninja or Birdie were interesting characters... Uh, there might be a better movie here. But as none of them are interesting characters and Captain America sucks here, it's kind of hard. Yeah. Also, uh, not enough, also, not I, enough I li- Molson. It's true. <laughs> I don't uh, know Vegas, guys, can, I could go for a cool, refreshing Molson right about now. <laughs> uh, can Vegas we jump complaint. back to about 45 minutes ago? Uh, no. Because no, that's not I, how this time is something works. that I, I wasn't paying. We went over this before. You don't know how to jump back in time. attention. <laughs> <laughs> okay, go ahead. Uh, I wasn't paying 100% attention during this scene. But when, when they're 
when Captain America and the the daughter of his love interest are Sharon, yeah, Sharon, uh, when they're driving in the car in Italy, and there's a moment where um, she they get in a fight or something, and she kicks him out. Or what is no, what no, is going the, the, on? This was this was is his, that when uh, he steals the car? I'm car sick gambit. Yeah, okay. yeah. He 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 pulls the signature right. move, and she's um, outside yeah, the car like yelling time. at him. Yeah, I got okay. All right, that makes sense because I had been under the impression at the time that they had gotten in a fight and she she had like chosen to separate herself from him. No, no, um, no. But see, I guess that okay. w- that would make sense. Captain America <laughs> no, it, <laughs> pretending that he's going to throw up so he can steal a car does not make sense. And his okay. excuse is essentially like, "This is too dangerous for a lady. I'm not taking you." Okay. That is a, that is very nearly a direct quote. <laughs> so, we have we have again, we have been talking about this movie for about the length of the movie. <laughs> I'd say more um, than that. Yeah, the movie's yeah. only about an hour and a half. Mm. We are about a half hour further than that. Uh, Can... b- before we say ahead, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, like, we asked the question, where does it fail? But can we ask the question, where does it succeed? Because this is obviously an extremely low-budget production that is not working with a, a culture of comic book films to, to refer to, uh, nor even necessarily a strong sense of Captain America, you know, to, to the, the, the majority of the American audience. So they have to build the character and uh, the... I don't know the character tropes that will be used in uh, superhero films. But they, so, they I mean, they have to do quite a bit with so no budget. Quickly. I mean, the, again, the the budget is definitely an issue. But I I kind of agree with Derek. Like the the major problems of this film seem to start at the scripting stage. Yeah. Also, the budget of this film, according to Wikipedia, so I cannot verify this, but according to Wikipedia, ten million dollars. Oh my which god! Is low. It's low, but it's not really that low. In that, I do not see ten million dollars on the screen. No, I uh, do to, not buy that. Yeah. To answer to answer uh, Duge's question, I I do think one of the things that does well is uh, obviously we've talked about the Red Skull being kind of far uh, far off target in terms of the character, but as we were talking about earlier. This is reasonably faithful to the setup of Steve Rogers of Captain America. Uh, and particularly given what we've seen previously in Punisher and uh, Howard the Duck, it is kind of refreshing to see something that is on, on most of sort of the big picture details of how this character came to be, this character, pretty faithful to the established canon. I think that's fair. All right, uh, final thoughts before we sign off here, uh, starting with you, Mr. Watson-Jones. We'll move digital left to digital right here. <laughs> um, come back to me. God damn it. You've ruined <laughs> right, everything. Uh, Cox Beatty, 2016. Nick? I still want to know how everybody converged on Captain America in the Canadian wilderness. This is really the, this is the part of the movie that I keep finding. I'm haunted by this bizarre scene that is never set up as to how they all find him there at once. I want an explanation. Uh, for me, on my end, before we come back around to you, Dooge, uh, one thing that no one has mentioned, 
I really kind of loved the terrifying red death rat that we were shown at the beginning of the Sumatran rat monkey before. uh, (laughs) uh, It was like the result of of the experiments that the doctor had been doing. And it's this horrifying, oversized, red-toned rat monster. And the way that the Italian generals explain it is... it is now twice as strong and twice as intelligent. And the rat is in there like, yes, I forgot twice about as that. Intelligent. And, and they watch it on a newsreel. Yeah. yeah. And the, and at no point did the doctor go, you know what? I am creating a literal demon rat here. Maybe I'm not on the side of good. It's only when the child is brought in does she start having second thoughts about her army of horrifyingly deformed, intelligent rats. <laughs> Uh, all right, back around to you, dude. Final um, thoughts. The thing, the thing that I'm left with is the stark contrast between not just the film that existed in my memory from when I was a child, but the the specific makeup of the climactic scene that I remember uh, seeing as a kid. Uh, I, the way that I remember the final scene as a kid was that I don't remember it being a complex action sequence with a lot of different characters. I remember Captain America having to like fight his way to the top of the castle and him mm-hmm. he reaches the top of the castle and he's the uh when he gets there the red skull with a red skull is like playing the piano and it is like he my recollection is that he's this kind it's like almost a romantic scene where uh he is he's He's playing the piano, and he's he gives some monologue or something about I don't, God knows what. But uh, there, there's an actual like sense of dialogue between uh, the Red Skull, who I remember as being like an intelligentsia figure, and Captain America as being a, like a very super hero, super heroic figure. Hold on, Nick. Uh, and like Red Skull says is is talking and playing the piano, and then Captain America basically appears, listens to him, and throws his shield at him, uh, and then it, it turns into, like, an action sequence. But there's the very real sense that Red Skull is, like, wistful about his childhood uh, and and regrets the way that things have, have like, played out between himself and and his, his brother figure from another continent. Uh, and... Absolutely none of that is present in the real film. <laughs> and, and this is what I remembered, not not like in comparison afterwards, but this is what I had thought was present in the film before I watched it for this first time in at least 15 years. That sounds like Probably, a much no, better film. 20 years. It really does. <laughs> yeah, it really bothers me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, the, I just uh, I, I distinctly remembered the Red Skull is like representing like the intelligentsia, and Captain America is representing like the muscle bound superhero, and it, that's just that's not the case at all. <laughs> that you would should be have, you should have written this film. That would have been such a better movie. As, Predic- particularly as that particularly that whole particularly that idea of the brotherhood. <laughs> That brotherhood <laughs> angle, which is very briefly brought up in, like, the very first confrontation between the Red Skull and Captain yeah. America, where they're fighting outside the nuke, 
and he keeps oh. calling Red Skull keeps calling him brother, and Captain yeah. America says, "Stop calling me that." And I think that's the last time it's ever brought up. No, no, no it, point it, comes, the- it, co- it comes up in the final fight at the end because Red Skull says to him, "Ah, you should have stayed frozen, my American brother," yeah. or something like that. And then Captain America, I- in a, a very like passive aggressive voice, says, "I'm not your brother." <laughs> I, I also would You're like to point out that, <laughs> that I I really enjoyed that the the film like within the first twenty minutes had uh, Captain America confronting the Red Skull. Uh, that and I think it's like twenty five minutes into it that 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 you know there's the whole White House missile sequence that it yeah. it does not start off slowly. <laughs> That's true. Nor well. No, yeah, I was no, surprised how well, quickly but, they know. froze him. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that, that's. <laughs> I feel we, like again when, when we do when we do the Chris Evans film, we'll, we'll talk about it then. But yeah. the decision to do the entire Chris Evans film during World War II was one of the best decisions that was made in that film. Because if you don't do that, <laughs> then you have to truncate that entire crucial formative experience <laughs> into something like. Well, what we saw in this film. <laughs> yeah, yes. I have to say that the first act of this film was, I felt, you know, fairly solid. Uh, it's it's For everything it after he gets frozen that really, you know, it's like they spent it's the solid whole of by the, the standard of this movie. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. I would say, yeah, like the, it's the best act in the film. <laughs> yes. I like your pun. So I, I would say in, in our uh, in our ranking, uh, I would say this probably still ranks above Howard the Duck uh, by consensus, but uh, does not does not hold a candle to the Punisher. Yeah, yeah, I would say the Punisher yeah. is the best we've watched so far, particularly Although, in, particularly in terms of low budget potentiality. Um, yeah, yeah I feel like uh, Punisher. Oh, go ahead, Nick. Yeah, I feel like The Punisher was much closer to being on the mark than mm. this was. Like, I feel like the distance between The Punisher being a good movie and what we got versus Captain America being a good movie and what we got, much, much larger gap with this movie. That's the Barriado uh, factor. Uh, I'm pretty sure that were, were some of the shield effects in this done with stop motion? Because it looked a lot like... The uh, the shield itself as it was ass- flying through the I air with stop motion. Crappy wires. Okay, uh, yeah, I'm not. I'm not exactly sure how it was done, but all right. Not, there, there weren't well. there weren't any special effects in this film. There were just effects, <laughs> common effects. Uh, I, I will say that Howard the Duck had some amazing stop motion stuff. Since I wasn't here for this podcast, uh, that podcast, yeah, the, the monster. Yeah, yeah. that yeah. And no, I love stop motion. I'll take stop motion over most any computer generation. That's fair. Yeah, no, I think I think we agreed that the uh, that the special effects were the best thing about Howard the Duck. The special effects that weren't oh. the duck costume. <laughs> All right, so yeah. at at the end of the day, we are we are left with a film that, despite weird attempts to be faithful to its uh, its roots and weird deviations from those roots, uh, is is ultimately brought down by a, a really sort of half-hearted script and some pretty poor casting. Um, I have a feeling that that theme will come up again as we go through some future films here. Um, nope. It's clear nope. sailing from here on out. <laughs> I wouldn't speak too soon, Nick, because for our next episode, we're going to move forward from 1990 to 1994. 
and visit the world of Roger Corman as he creates what is arguably the most notorious Marvel Comics film, nay, comic book film of all time. I am referring, of course, to the Roger Corman Fantastic Four. <laughs> yes. I am so happy about that. That's, that's very literally why I signed up for this project. I'm pretty excited about it. Uh, and I've never two- seen it. I don't know if you, if you guys have seen it. Nope. But ne- never yeah. seen a frame of it. So this okay. this is uh, we're all going this, in fresh. We don't have to deal with Dooge having weird nostalgic <laughs> memories of it, insisting that yes. it's a good movie. The way that I would if we were talking about the Ewok movies. I have a lot of sympathy for Dooge for Dooge's perspective here because I feel the exact same way about the Ewok movies. I I would like to make it clear that I did not insist at any point anything about this film, let alone that it was good. All I did was present. A, a vague feeling that I had from my childhood. <laughs> there was no insistence. We'll see if watching the Fantastic Four brings up any other vague feelings besides like bile <laughs> nausea. and self-loathing. Yeah, nausea. Yeah. That's next time. This was this time. This was Captain America from 1990. And so we today, the uh, I'll, I'll say it with, with enthusiasm this time, Cinema Excelsior crew are signing off. Thank you. Slap a jap for cap. (laughs) When Captain America throws his mighty shield.